Well, Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 25 through the beginning of chapter 5. So so just those first two verses of uh, Ephesians chapter 5. And so Ephesians 4, verse 25 through chapter 5, verse 2. Uh, Just a short section. And this is the, the fourth part of walking worthy. And so remember, Paul's whole point here in chapter 4 is what it looks like to walk worthy of our calling. And so we're going to see here in part 4 what that looks like very, very specifically. So follow along. I'm going to read here at the outset. We've got a lot to cover, so so I want to get right to it. So Ephesians chapter 4, I'm going to begin reading in verse 25. Paul writes, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one body. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God, beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let's pray together. Lord, this is your word. The Apostle Paul penned these words under the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. And so, Spirit, you know our hearts and you know the heart of God. And so we ask that our hearts would be conformed to the heart of God, that we would be benefited from this scripture. And so the applications, Spirit, that you would have for us are are endless. And so I pray, Spirit, that you would do what I can't. Would you apply the word to the hearts of your people? And Lord, if there are those here who don't know you, I pray that they would have eyes open to see the glories of Jesus and the new life that he offers. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So we're going to walk through the, these verses. There, there's only two sections, and I'm going to, I'm going to make sure you're paying attention because I've, I've inverted the way we're going to walk, walk through this. And so the first thing we're going to look at is those first two verses of chapter 5, and then we're going to walk through verses 25 through 32 of chapter 4. Okay, so we're going to start at the end, and then we're going to work back and, and go 25 through 32. So look there first at the, the first two verses of chapter 5. Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2. We're we're starting here. Let me tell you why. We're starting here at the end because I think here in verses 1 and 2, I think these verses lay the foundation and the motivation for walking worthy. So so it's like the end, but it's saying, here's the pattern that you're to follow, Christian. Here's the pattern, the big picture, that all the specifics that that come before this, are are the the, the specifics that round out chapter 4, are to be seen in light of this big picture. This big picture... It's kind of the, the summary of all the specifics that are in the verses prior. So, so look there, verses 1 and 2. Paul writes, Therefore, 
Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And so Paul says, be imitators of God and walk in love. Those are the two imperatives, the two exhortations. Paul is calling the Ephesian Christians to be imitators of God, to be godly. He's saying, be like God, which means to pursue holiness and to pursue righteousness. So he's saying, be imitators of God, pursue these things. Remember, all all the way up in in verse 24 of chapter 4, the new self is created for righteousness and holiness, Paul said. And so he calls them, be imitators of God, and then walk in love. In other words, the life that you have, Christian, is, is, is a life that you're to live for the good of others. And so your life is to be spent, to be poured out for the good of others. Example, Jesus Christ himself. So it's not just this sentimental love, oh yeah, just love, just have these warm fuzzies. No, you're to give your very life for the benefit of others. That's, that's the pattern that's set. And Paul's saying, be imitators of God and walk in love. And walk in this love that has been, this pattern of love that's been set by Jesus. And so here at the end, in, in, verse, in the beginning of chapter 5, understanding this big picture is important because, here's why it's important, my life and your life, the, the Christian life in general, the, the nitty-gritty should be governed by these principles. Christians are called to be imitators of God and to love like Jesus. And so if you're here and you're a Christian, that's what you're called to. That's the big picture of your life, to be an imitator of God and to walk in love. And that should reach every aspect of your life. So it's not just be an imitator of God and walk in love when you're doing a a church event or when you're at at church. No, your identity is for the purpose of imitating God. Your new self is to imitate God and to walk in love. And so Christians, the context here, we're to put off our old self because the old self doesn't imitate God. And the old self doesn't walk in love. And so the whole, he's building this whole argument saying your life is to put off and to put on. Put off the old and put on the new because you've been made new. And so putting off the old is because it doesn't align with your purpose. And Christians are called to put on the new self by imitating God and walking in love. As one commentator notes, the continuous display of love for one another is the epitome of what it means to be a Christian. And so a Christian who doesn't love another is not a Christian because loving one another is what is the foundation of being a Christian. And so for those who have put their faith in Jesus, who've been made new, who've been given a new self, there's a difference. Something has happened. The the life of the Christian is on a different trajectory than the person who's not a Christian. It's on a different trajectory than it was before they met Jesus. And that difference is seen in the practical everyday life. I mean, that's his point and why he walks through verses 25 through 32. He's focusing on the nitty gritty, the everyday And the difference should be seen at the micro level. Your everyday life should be evidence that you have been made new. And so Paul exhorts them, put off the old and put on the new. It's not this putting off, putting on dynamic. It's not left out in the realm of theory or abstract thinking. No, he's going to get really specific. And, And my guess is that these specifics in verses 25 through 32, some of them, if not all of them, are going to convict you, and they ought to. They, they convict me, they ought to. Because we are all in this old self, new self struggle. It's not like when you become a Christian, you lose a battle with the old self. Oh, I'm, I'm great. 
I've been made new. I have no more struggles. That's not the reality. If you think it is, you're wrong. If you're pretending like it is or living like it is, you're deceiving yourself and others. Right? We all live in this old, new self-struggle. That's why Paul says, put off the old. Continue putting off the old. I mean, I thought about an illustration. I don't know if this is helpful, but, but it's like the, the front door at our house, the, the glass storm door. Right? You can keep it clean for a bit, but with three young kids, it's not staying clean. So you don't permanently windex the window and, and expect it to be good. You know, okay, maybe it's going to be tomorrow, maybe it'll be a week, maybe it'll last that long, but, but fingerprints or tongue marks, something's going to show up on that glass. And so when you clean it, you don't say, all right, it's, it's indefinitely clean. You know, okay, this is just the nature of a, of a glass door with kids. And so when, when smudges show up, right, you regularly clean them. So the old self, can t- he's going to rear his head. It's going to show up. Maybe it's in an argument when you're in a tense conversation with your spouse. Or maybe it's, maybe it's someone cuts you off. You're going to have the old self rear its, rear its ugly head. And when it does, you put it off and you put on what is in accord with the new self. What is godly and righteous and holy. And so that, that's the dynamic. And so the first application point that I just want to make right here is that for the Christian, it is necessary to put off the old and put on the new. If you're a Christian, you should be doing this, or at least thinking that you should be doing this and desiring to do this. So Paul's point in, in walking worthy and walking in accord with the new self is walking in a way that puts off the old and puts on the new. Puts off the old, puts on the new. And so walking worthy, putting on the new, is, is pursuing and striving for godliness. I mean, that's why we've been made alive with Christ. We've been given a new self. We were dead, but now we're alive, and we're created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So that's what Paul said in verse 24 of chapter 4. And so we've been made alive to imitate God and walk in love. And since that's true, the call to put on the new self, it's not optional. right? It's necessary. It's who you are, Christian. And what's more is that putting off the old and putting on the new is evidence that something has actually happened. It's evidence that change has actually taken place. And so as we continue through this section, you're going to hear all these exhortations and all these calls to put off the old and put on the new. If you hear them and you think, I don't do that really well, or, yep, that's my struggle, right? If you you hear that, that's, that's the right response to hear, yeah, I still struggle with the old self. Yeah, I still, I still struggle in those ways. That's the right response, recognizing you're still in process. Maybe that's what you need to hear this morning. If you think that being a Christian means you have to have it all together, you're wrong. Every Christian, most immature to most mature, is still in process. You don't have to have it all together. That's part of what it means is is learning. I don't have it all together. And so be encouraged, Christian. You are in process. And so if you hear these things and think, oh, I need to grow, that's right. We all do. What isn't okay is for us to hear these exhortations, these specific exhortations, to hear the call to put off and to put on, to hear them, and to be indifferent towards them and say, nah, I don't care. I'm not going to change this. It doesn't matter to me. I would argue that that is unchristian. It's unchristian to see the old self and not to care. And so just hear me, it's a huge problem if you see your struggles, your sinful habits, or your, your sinful patterns, and you just don't care. That is a warning to the nth degree. Apathy towards old self is not evidence of change 
letting oneself go headlong indefinitely into sinful desires is actually evidence of no new self having been created. And so if I've been created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, and if my life and its trajectory is continually away from righteousness and holiness, at some point I have to ask myself, am I new? Maybe it's time to stop playing the game. Those who have trusted in Christ, those who've been made alive with him, who've been made new, who've been raised to life, those people put off the old and put on the new. Not perfectly. There's always room for growth, but the Christian recognizes the call that I need to put off the old and put on the new. And it, and it, and it affects, it, it shows itself in the nitty-gritty. So let's look, verses 25 through 32, the second, second section, what I've just called the Christian life. The Christian life, chapter 4 of Ephesians, verses 25 through 32. And so as Paul, this, this new life consists not in always or only living in line with the new self, but instead pursuing and striving and fighting against sin when it rears its ugly head. When the smudge marks show up, you fight it, you clean it, you address it. It's a process of putting off and putting on. And so notice, that this is important, it's a two-step process. So it's not enough for Paul to say, just put off these things. Just stop doing that. Just stop doing that. Just stop doing that. That's not enough. That's not what he says. He doesn't say stop lying, stop stealing, stop letting corrupt talk come from your mouth. Stop, stop, stop. Right? Sometimes as a parent, that's what, that's what we want to do. Just stop. Just stop. Well, Paul says that's not enough. You stop, you put off, and you put on, you replace. So you put off the old and you put on the new. And so he replaces these, these vices, these negative vices, and he replaces them and offers a positive virtue that combats the negative vice. And so that's the process. You, you put off by putting on. And that's the process. And so if I'm pursuing these, these positive virtues, I'm not going to be in, in the grasp of these vices. And so that's, that's the process. So let's walk through these, these verses. And, and to help us kind of think through them, there, there's, there's six truths about the Christian life. Six truths about the old self and the new self from from these verses. And, and what we're going to see, the theme as we walk through these exhortations, and it's actually, it's quite beautiful, and it's fitting in, in light of the context of chapter 4, but these, these exhortations, the virtues, the things encouraged, the things that we're called to put on, are, are actually virtues that lead to and promote unity. And so as you put on godliness, right, the result, which is beautiful, is that each individual aiming to walk worthy in his or her calling leads to the body being united and being built up. And so it's an individual call, but it leads to a corporate reality. And because all of these virtues are, are unifying and, and lead to that, while it's the negative devices, they're all divisive. They're all about self and not about the other. And so that, that's, that's what we're going to see. Paul calls us to unity, and, and we put off and put on these virtues that, that facilitate unity and growth. So, Truth number one there in verse 25. The new self speaks the truth. The old self spreads falsehood. The new self speaks the truth. The old self spreads falsehood. There in verse 25. Paul writes, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. So right off the bat, we see that the old self, the, the nature that we're called to put off, consists of speaking falsehoods. He said, having put that away... Namely, having been made new and having put that away, the old self is characterized by falsehood, by, by spreading lies. 
by things that aren't true. And it, it, that's the case because the old self is only concerned with, with number one, with me, myself, and I. I don't care about anyone else. And so I'm driven, the old self is driven by self-interest and self-promotion. And when that's the case, truth doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what's true. All that matters is I get what I want. Or my desires are met. Or everyone works for my good. Right? That, that's the old self. It's driven by falsehood. And so Paul says, having put away falsehood, meaning it doesn't fit with who you are, with your new self, having put that away, let each one of you, virtue, speak the truth. Be truthful. Tell the truth. Speak the truth with your neighbor. Notice the reason behind the truth telling there at the end of verse 25. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor for we are members one of another. That's the ground. That's the reason. The reason that Paul tells these Ephesian Christians to tell the truth to each other is because you're part of the same body. You're one. You're united. And so Paul's pursuit of truth telling is understood to be within the context of one another. And so exhortation to tell the truth, it can't be carried out without other people, right? You can't tell the truth to yourself. You know whether it's true or not. And so this, the, the truth-telling context is within the body. And Paul's emphasis in verse 25 is that the people of Christ should be men and women of truth. And so relationships within the body should be characterized by truth-telling. Members of the same body, Christians who've been united to one another, must tell the truth to one another. A failure to do so. Think about that. Members of one body who don't tell one another the truth goes against the purpose of reconciliation, goes against the purpose of being united. Telling the truth enables unity. If I can't trust you to tell me the truth, how can we be one? Especially if your truth telling is to defend yourself against me. It's divisive by its very nature. Telling lies to your brother or sister in Christ only leads toward division. There's never any good reason to lie to one another, to deceive one another within the body. I mean, without the body, that's true too, but the context here is within the body. And so what does lying look like? I mean, obviously there's, there's blatant lying. So I say, hey, I'm only, I'm only 30 years old when, you're, when maybe you're 50, right? That's a blatant lie, right? That, that's prohibited. Or my temptation, when I wear my, my University of Virginia sweatshirt, yeah, I went to UVA. That's a lie. I didn't. I want to, especially now, but that, that's a blatant lie, right? But th those are obvious, but if that's the extent of your definition of lying, and say, okay, I just got to avoid that. If, if that's the extent of your definition, you're sorely mistaken. And so here, this list that, that one pastor gave, and I, I thought these were really helpful. How, how can we lie to our brother or sister? When your wife confronts you with sin and you deny it, you're lying, when you tear down another person by your speech, and thus you do not speak of them as God would have you speak of them, you're lying. When you make commitments that you do not follow through on, you're lying. When you retell a story or conversation intentionally leaving out specific details or intentionally slanting it to make yourself the good guy and the other person the bad guy, you're lying. And the point here, and why this stands out, is that we live in a world that's infatuated and saturated with spreading falsehood. It's everywhere. You don't know who to believe anymore. Because you, everyone lies. Everyone smudges the truth. Lies are everywhere. Commercials. Right? Coca-Cola. Open happiness. Are you serious? That's a lie. 
commercials, media outlets, news feeds, your Facebook feed. It's everywhere where people are deceiving you and spreading falsehoods. That's the world. And Paul says, that's not the case in here. It must not be. We must tell the truth. Paul says, you must not be part of that. Put away falsehood and speak the truth to one another. That's how we love each other. Truth number two, verse 26 and 27. Second truth, the new self deals with anger, the old self dwells in anger. The new self deals with anger, the old self dwells in anger. Look there at verse 26. Paul writes, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now, first thing to notice, this verse, maybe you've heard it before, it's often used as evidence of, of having this category of righteous anger. So you say, look. You can be angry and not sin. Now, that's true. I think that's right. I think there's a, a category of righteous anger. Maybe Jesus overthrowing temple uh, or tables in the temple. Maybe that, that fits within righteous anger. But the command to be angry while not sinning seems to imply that there's an anger that's not sinful. right? So that, that's right. But the righteous anger is not what Paul's intended on establishing here. That's not his point. So what's the context here? Paul's concern is the prevention of sin not the obligation of anger. So Paul's not saying, hey, you should be righteously angry at a lot of stuff. He's not saying that. He's saying, be angry and don't sin. So he, he wants you to, to be angry, but not to let that anger creep into sin. So he wants you to prevent anger from turning to sin. That's his context. In other words, Paul's saying that the new self doesn't allow anger to turn sinful. And anger turns sinful, it appears at least from these verses, when it's allowed to fester when it isn't dealt with, when the sun goes down on your anger. I mean, that's, I think, the point there. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. There, there's an immediacy that it must be dealt with. Don't let the opportunity pass. I mean, here it's suggested that anger can be prevented from denigrating into sin if a strict time limit is placed on it. This is one of the most neglected things in our church culture. The current church culture, when Paul says, don't let the sun go down in your anger, Paul implies your anger should be dealt with and addressed. If you're angry at someone for something, if you refuse to address that person, if you think that'll just go away, you're ensuring that anger will denigrate into sin. You can't just ignore it and say it's going to go away. If you're angry, it should and must be dealt with because undealt with anger denigrates into sin. That's what he says, don't let... We prevent anger from, from creeping into sin or turning into sin is by dealing with it. Don't dwell in it. Don't let it dwell within you. That's, that's not in accord with the new self. Now, sometimes, sometimes anger can be dealt with by, by simply evaluating the circumstances of your anger because a lot of my anger, it's not righteous. Right? Yeah, someone cut me off. Right? Is that righteous anger? How many times have I cut someone off? Right? They pay their taxes for the roads just like I do. They have a right to it. And so a lot of times I just say, well, why am I angry? That, that's, that's not okay. I, I'm sinfully angry from the get-go sometimes. And so I just examine and I say, okay, that, that's not okay. This is not a righteous anger. So sometimes that's, that's all you have to do. This anger isn't justified. It's not a righteous anger, so I deal with it. I confess it. I say, I'm sorry. But other times when anger occurs relationally, when someone's done something that angers you, and it's not an unrighteous anger, if something has happened and you are angry, when that happens, Paul says here, 
You've got to address it in a timely manner. Don't let it settle. Don't dwell on it. Don't just say, well, it's fine. If you're justified in your anger, it's best for you and for the other person for it to be addressed. Because when we're angry, we're always justified, right? We think at least. Maybe it's addressing it, saying, I'm really mad that you did this. And there can be a response to say, you're right, I'm sorry. Or, no, you were wrong. Right? So, so sometimes it, it takes addressing it to resolve it. But the point is, it's got to be resolved. We don't nurse our wrath to keep it warm. Right? That's not recommended as wise policy, least of all for Christians. When we, when we nurse our wrath, when we, we dwell in anger, it magnifies the grievance. So once was what, a, what was a small thing is now a huge thing. It makes reconciliation more difficult, if not impossible, and it destroys the relationships within the body that are supposed to be unified. So don't let anger dwell, Paul says. Anger that lingers destroys the unity of the body, and it does so. Look at verse 27. Specifically, look at how anger that lingers destroys the body. It gives a foothold to the devil. Do you see that? Don't give a foothold to the devil, meaning... If you let your anger linger and don't address it, you go to bed with your, your anger not addressed, that is giving a foothold to Satan himself. Or another translation, don't give the devil a chance to exert his influence. As Paul's saying, if anger is prolonged, Satan can use it for his own ends and exploit the strains that are developing within the Christian community. I mean, I shouldn't have to say this, but division within the body is Satan's aim. And he will take any and every opportunity to divide and alienate members of the body. And Paul says here that festering anger is a prime opportunity for him. Notice Satan's not credited with producing the anger. Paul says, deal with your anger in a timely manner. If you refuse to do so, you're giving the devil a foothold. And I, I think it's right to say it's not just undealt with anger that gives Satan a foothold. I think every exhortation in this whole section, which addresses the temptation to live in accord with the old self, I think a failure to heed any of these warnings to put off the old self in these specific ways gives a foothold to the devil. Because all of them are aimed at at building unity and fighting against disunity. And so put off the old self. Deal with anger because anger that lingers provides Satan with an inch of working room. It gives him an unlocked door, as it were. What this means, I mean, get this, in this, this, this very basic day-to-day life of, of Christian living, your everyday in-and-out life, in the midst of that, spiritual warfare is taking place. And so, so being angry with someone and not dealing with it is spiritual warfare. You may say, no, that's just a silly thing. No, Paul says it's spiritual warfare. And it takes place in seemingly insignificant ways. And that's how we're deceived. Oh, it's not a big deal. But before you know it, there's, there's fractures everywhere. And so you ought to know, Fox Hill Road Baptist Church, Satan would be overjoyed to destroy us. He would, and that's his aim. And he is trying. So verses 26 and 27, we combat Satan by dealing with anger. Truth 3, verse 28 third truth about the the Christian life or the new self. The new self is concerned for others. The old self is only concerned with self, or the old self is not concerned with others. So the new self is concerned for others. 
The old self is not concerned for others or only concerned with self. So look there, 28. Verse 28, he writes, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So one commentator, I thought this was amusing, he writes, This verse may be the most striking description of conversion in the New Testament. The most striking description of conversion in the New Testament. I don't think that's stating it too strongly. I mean, this is clearly a contrast between old and new in the instance of the thief, isn't it? I mean, that's that's black black and white, day and night. That is contrast. And the contrast, and I would say between the old and the new self, is, is that seen here in verse 28, at its most basic level, is a contrast between one's fundamental outlook on life. So the old self, the thief in this case, steals. He doesn't work. He doesn't care about anyone else. It's all about him. So he doesn't care who's affected by his actions. He steals, and he takes, and he takes what's not rightfully his. He's only concerned about self. But the thief, in coming to Christ, in learning Christ, as Paul would say, puts off the old, and the transition is seen in putting on the new, which consists of doing honest work. So getting paid what one is owed for work. There's the exchange. I give labor, and I get, I get paid. I don't steal. I give labor. But notice the labor isn't just for himself or his family. Then say, just work and provide for your own family. Yes, that's the basic needs that are met, but, but Paul says... Instead of stealing for himself, of being only inwardly focused, he then works and gets honest wage, and then he can give to anyone in need. Anyone in need. Context, local body. And so not only does he stop stealing, but, but then he starts saving and making money so that then he can give it away. Do you see the, the stark contrast? I once took what wasn't mine, and then I'm freely giving away what is mine. What a contrast. One commentator said, the thief is to become a philanthropist. And I think that's the point. Conversion shifts your priority. You go from self-focused to other-focused. And you're other-focused because you've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer you who live, but, but Christ who lives in you. You don't have to live for yourself anymore. Your old self has been crucified. You've been raised to new life. And this new life is lived for others. So the new life is a generous life that is concerned for the good of others. Truth number four, verse 29. So so Paul continues this this theme of pursuing the good of others. But in doing so, Paul turns next to using our words for the good of others. So look there in verse 29. The new self speaks life-giving words. The old self speaks words that corrupt. The new self speaks life-giving words. The old self speaks corrupting words or rotten words or filthy words, words that corrupt. So there, verse 29, Paul says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but, his replacement, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So notice here, verse 29, well, I thought Paul already dealt with speech. Now he said, put off falsehood and tell the truth. right? But, but now he's turning to speech again, which tells us the the, 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 one of the greatest enemies in our Christian life is our tongue, but, but now as he addresses the tongue and, and speech, instead of this what's true versus false, do you notice it's what's good and what's bad? So it's a different angle at it. So yes, tell what's true and forsake falsehood, but also just because it's true doesn't mean it's, it's good. So you should also be concerned to, to speak what is good and not what is rotten. 
what's good and benefits versus what's corrupt or, or filthy or rotten. And so notice the criteria here. I mean, what a, what a great list. If you're like me, do you struggle with, with words? Here, here's your criteria. Here's your, here's your note card material. Write this down and put it somewhere that you see. Put it on your phone. The criteria for, for Christian speech, verse 29. The new self speaks words that are good for building up, fit the occasion, and give grace to those who hear. Three criteria, that's it. Good for building up, fit the occasion, give grace to those who hear. That's the talk that's fitting for the new self. That's the talk that's in accord with imitating God and loving others. And so Paul says, Christian, you ought to speak good words, not rotten words, not filthy words. Good words that build up, that fit the occasion, that give grace to those who hear. I mean, I don't think this is extreme. Every single word that comes out of your mouth ought to fit within all three of those categories. There aren't any throwaway words in the Christian life. Your words are powerful and they have meaning. And so Paul says, speak good words. You have an opportunity to build up and to fit the occasion. I think, notice here, that fits the occasion. Well, how do we know? Well, when you're in a relationship with someone, you, you know when they're discouraged. So what's a fitting word to them? Encourage them. Give them hope. Or, or maybe you know them and you see that they're going a path they shouldn't go down. A fitting word isn't, hey, don't worry, it's okay. A fitting word is stop. That's a fitting word that gives grace and builds up. So every word, there are no throwaway words. And so memorize this verse. Teach it to your kids. Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. That's the negative, but don't stop there. But only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And so it's not enough to teach our kids. Maybe you've heard this. If you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. You've heard that. Maybe you've said that. That's not enough. It's not Christian because it doesn't go far enough. It's not just if you can't say something nice and don't say anything. No, Paul doesn't say be silent. He says don't say mean things, but say positive things. Paul's point isn't simply on preventing corrupt talk. Paul's point is replacing corrupt talk with good talk. And the replacement is necessary because the old self has been replaced by a new self. So old talk is replaced by new talk. I mean, just listen to the wisdom from James. I thought about this. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. Note, none of you are perfect, man or woman. So you all stumble in many ways. Verse 4, James says, look at the ships also. They're, though they are so large and they're driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So you've got this huge ship with huge mast and huge sails and this tiny little rudder that just turns wherever the, the, the pilot wants it to go. This small thing controls this huge ship. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. And James continues on and on and on. I mean, the tongue is our enemy when it's not kept. And that's, that, that's my tendency. When I'm frustrated... 
when things aren't going my way, my old self comes up, my tongue says things that I think, oh, where did that come from? It is an enemy that would destroy me, and it's not in accord with my new self. And so Paul says, the new self speaks life-giving words. The words that we use are foundational for putting on the new self. Truth five. And these last two are, are more, more quick. So truth five, verse 30. The new self is in step with the Holy Spirit. The old self grieves the Holy Spirit. So the new self is in step with the Holy Spirit. The old self grieves the Holy Spirit. So look there at verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now while this, again, it's a popular verse, I'm afraid the main point is often neglected. The context here implies that grieving the Holy Spirit is characterized by unwholesome talk. Right? So how do you grieve the Holy Spirit? Right? You let corrupt talk come out of your mouth. You use words that tear down. That grieves the Holy Spirit, Paul says. And so the exhortation not to grieve the Holy Spirit is in the exhortation to build up the body with good words. I mean, the unity of the body is how, how we, we keep in step with the Spirit. And so we grieve the Holy Spirit by working against the unity that He has been given to ensure. And so evil speech, but, but really all forms of unholy behavior, deeply hurts the Spirit whom God has given to His people to indwell them and empower them to live a holy life. We've been given the Spirit as a guarantee of our inheritance, Paul would say in chapter 1. And His presence with us, marking us, sealing us for the day of redemption, ought to motivate us. We've been given the Spirit to help us put off the old and put on the new. We're not defeatists. We don't walk around with our heads down. Continually, oh, E or me, I just can't ever win. No, you can win because God has given you His Holy Spirit. It ought to motivate us, especially in light of this. Look, look at it. This is amazing. Sin in the life of the believer is not threatened with a loss of the Holy Spirit. Do you see that? Sinning, right? He doesn't say, don't you lose the Spirit. Don't you make me take it away from you. So the believer has the Spirit for eternity. Right? The Spirit is guaranteed and cannot be taken away. I mean, that's huge. And so in your fight, it's not like, oh, I'm going to screw up and God's going to take his spirit from me. That's what David feared. That's not a new covenant fear. The spirit is a guarantee that you're going to reach the end. You can't lose him, but you can grieve him. So he says, don't grieve him. But he doesn't threaten taking the spirit away, which is really encouraging to me. So don't grieve the spirit. Keep in step with the spirit. And then finally, the sixth truth there in verse 31 and 32. The, old, the new self loves others while the old self hates others. Most basic, the new self loves others while the old self hates others. Let's look there, verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. So, so that's the put away. So that, this is how he closes out this section. Put away. So remember verse 25, he said, put away falsehood. Verse 32, closing out this section, let all these things be put away. Verse 32, the virtue, positive, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And so I, I see verse 31 and 32 as kind of a summary of this final exhortation where Paul calls Christians to put away all things that are intended to express hostility and actions that destroy human relationships. So all these things he says, 
put all these things away. They're, they're all intended to destroy and express hostility between relationships. He says, let, them, let it all be put away. All bitterness, all wrath, all anger, all clamor, all slander, all malice, put them away. Because those within relationships divide and destroy. Put them away. And instead, put on the new self. Notice the contrast. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice, all things contrary to the unity that, that, that should characterize the body. Contrast, put on kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness. Paul says, these, though that I only mentioned three of them, these are more than sufficient to, to cover all these vices that I just mentioned. You want to put these all away? Be kind, tenderhearted, patient, forgive one another. These are qualities, virtues of the new self. And these are godly characteristics that we're called to. This is how we imitate God and we walk in love. And we can't miss here how he ends verse 32. The call to, to act this way with one another is based on the fact that God in Christ has forgiven you. And so living in light of the new self is simply extending horizontally what you've received vertically. Right? So, so we deal with others the way God's dealt with us. And so if I have a problem, if I'm dealing wrongly with others, it may be that I'm not rightly understanding what's happened here. God has been kind to you. God has forgiven you. God has been patient with you. Therefore, you, in putting on the new self, imitating God, do the same with others. Let's pray.